Yeah. So one of the things that the new perspective did, and this was a good thing, it, it did it did two things. It helped us articulate and sharpen justification. Whenever we're forced, whenever evangelicals are forced to go back to the sources, let's read them again. Uh, that let's let's articulate this afresh. Let's tighten it up. Whenever we do that, of course, it's a good thing. We're, I mean, that's within the reform tradition is it's, we're always reforming. We're always refreshing. We're always reading the Bible. Welcome to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic reform tradition delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Real quick, before we begin this episode, listen to the end for updates on our Santa Ana Reformed Church Plant efforts and our upcoming Bible study on the Book of Judges. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian Theology for your listening pleasure. And we are on a Season 3 Promises and Fulfillments episode. Again, Season 3 Promises and Fulfillments, we are walking through the Covenant Theology book published by Crossway. And today we have a repeat guest. We have Dr. Benjamin Glad on. He's going to be talking about his chapter he wrote within the book. And his chapter is Covenant and Contemporary New Testament Scholarship. It is chapter 23 of the book, but it is episode 26 of our show. And so before we jump into this episode with Dr. Glad, as a reminder on some show notes links, there is a link to Crossway. You can click that link. You can order this book for yourself. You can walk through this book with our season three and learn each episode based on each chapter of the book. And then uh, there's also a link to the society of reformed podcasters. This is a group of podcasts that we are a member of with similar doctrine and explanation of the reformed faith and tradition that you can, if you enjoy our show, you'll probably enjoy those shows as well. There's also a link to Find a local Reformed church near you. So you can click that Nate Park Church link, finder link, type in your zip code, find the closest Reformed church to your area. So we'll jump into this episode and reintroduce Dr. Benjamin Glad. How are you? Hey, how's it going? I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm a little cold. It's cold here in Mississippi. It was like 45 degrees. Oh, it's not that morning. different in San Diego right now. We we kind of got the same yeah. weather. Yeah, the problem right is that we've had the AC on, so I'm like, you know, I'm got all these layers on. It's so cold in my office. My goodness, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, it's like I'd be in my uh, my garage with hanging out there with Nick. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was about to say Nick. It was like, oh, he's in his. Oh, yeah, Nick's in his garage. That's why Nick has his jacket on. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I have a Carhartt jacket on. I live in Southern California. That's right. <laughs> That's right. The second, yeah, second it dips below sixty. There's news reports everywhere saying, "Hey, you guys should probably wear your jacket. It's getting a little cold out there." And mm-hmm. I mean, every other part of the country is like, "Are you kidding me?" It's, mm-hmm. That's nothing. That's what we do all for six months. You know, I, uh, Doctor Glad, I've been wanting to ask you this question for a while. What? Oh boy, did the 
what did the reformed podcast say to the non-reformed podcast? Man, I don't know. <laughs> we is, I've never had that one before. This would be a, this would be a dad joke extraordinaire. <laughs> this, yeah. is a da- this sounds like a dad joke. <laughs> we have been glad. Oh, see, I knew that's a very dad joke. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I, there was there was a there was many routes I thought I was going to take. That that's that was one of the routes. Yeah, I know that's uh, funny. We have we have been glad, and we are that's glad right. to have you back. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what I was expecting. <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm I sure get you've stuff never like, heard that joke I get before. stuff like, "How long have you been glad? I've always been glad." <laughs> <laughs> you know, I get I get all those things. You know, yeah, I've, Nick, I've heard Nick's them just all. adding right to it. Mm-hmm. Yep. The, the childhood of being glad, Nick, is just kind of prying back open. Okay. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but before we before we start, I'm not sure people have been updated. How's how's your uh, how's your move been doing? How's the renovation of your house been doing? Yeah, I mean it's great. Uh, we moved back in about a month ago. We we haven't bought everything back. I mean, you, it sounds like a great thing. Oh, I get to buy all my house back. Yeah. All, I mean, we don't, I mean, you know, we didn't have decorations. We didn't have furniture. We didn't have clothes. And uh, it's not a, it's, it, it's, it sounds fun. You're like, oh, I get some new shoes. I get new pants. I can, you know, <laughs> get new mirrors. Yeah. I get, yeah, but it's complicated. I don't, I'm not a shopper. I, mo- you know, most guys that I know uh, don't particularly like shopping. So when you're like, Oh, you have to replace your whole wardrobe. I'm like, that sounds terrible. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, so I, you know, slowly, but surely we're kind of putting the pieces back together. It, you know, we're just, we're really just trying to enjoy the holidays, Christmas and Thanksgiving, Christmas and Thanksgiving and new year's. We're just kind of just taking these days at a time and just yeah. enjoying where we are and enjoying our kids and having a great time. Uh, so we're just kind of in the moment at this point. So mm-hmm. we're, we're thankful for your prayers and concern. And I've had so many people, I was at ETS a couple of weeks ago and I had so many people come up to me and ask me about, hmm. about how we are doing. And yeah, it's just a great, it's just, a, it's a really neat um, sense of community, I think in my life and people that have, um, constantly reached out to me and prayed for us. And it's really been a huge blessing. So mm. it's, I'm tired, as I mentioned before, I'm tired <laughs> because I've been working for the last yeah, I can't year imagine why on you're tired. this house. Yeah. You just, just the stress of it all and working and then obviously teaching and writing. And I mean, I just need, I'm looking forward to the Christmas break. I really yeah. need a break. I've been doing some woodworking and uh, just hopefully kind of refreshing myself and taking a little bit of a respite yeah yeah well we're grateful for you and uh that you're 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 extremely busy and uh especially this last year yeah with the house endeavors but you're still pumping out books and works (laughs) and writings i don't know how you're doing it but yeah i know yeah that was kind of your fun stuff is writing and and reading and and doing yeah it's a good thing it's a good thing i i'm able to feel productive uh, when I do that, I enjoy it. It's not a, it's not, a, it's not a chore for me most of the time. I like it. Good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So kind of diving into this chapter. So it's broad based covenant and contemporary new Testament scholarship. I know you're a new Testament scholar, but what in general kind of um, both introduced you to, and, and was kind of your, your impetus for writing this chapter in covenant and contemporary new Testament scholarship in particular. 
Well, the yeah. impetus was Guy Waters, the editor, the main editor of the volume, asking me to write it. <laughs> yeah, he walked uh, over to your office. And I mean, I didn't. It. Yeah, <laughs> the way this volume worked is that they they had everything was pre-selected. They had all the the they had all the, they had a list of the essays, huh. and then they just found guys that oh, write the those particular essays. So mm. when it came to this topic, they're like, okay, Ben, we want you to write. I wouldn't have, this sounds bad, but I, I <laughs> probably wouldn't, if you would have given me the list, yeah, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have picked this one. Huh. I, um, huh. I like, I like to work with the Bible. Yep. Yeah. I know. Yeah. That's sounds, your, that's that your sounds big thing. Pedantic. Yep. It sounds pedantic, but I like to explain the Bible to, to pull the themes out, to work in the text, find details. Uh, that's what I like to do. That's yep. what I'm excited about. This chapter is not that. This chapter <laughs> yeah. is a description of what's happening in the wider field. And it's you're basically exegeting a field. Yep. And it's difficult. That's that's not that I don't I don't wake up in the morning wanting to do that. Yeah. But yeah. But I'm thankful for this chapter and I'm thankful that I got to put some of the pieces together and do some broad strokes here. Yeah. Maybe just as a side comment too, it might've been one of your interviews on another podcast or episode before. It might've been something you said in one of your books, but actually it affected me pretty tremendously. um, Cause Mm -hmm. I was looking when I was doing sermon prep or doing um, exegetical paper prep, I started looking outside of the Bible and say, how could, how can this, help me read my Bible a little bit better with this background, which is good. But something you had said is no, the, the, um, when you read and exegete the Bible, you look at how the Bible, um, and you read more Bible and you look at how other Bible passages help you understand this Bible passage. If we're looking at the new Testament, how is this fulfilling old Testament prophecy? If we're looking at the old Testament, <clears throat> how's looking forward to new Testament fulfillment? It actually changed the way I wrote mm. papers and I, I, I exegeted oh, for sermons. Cause I, I, I started, not that I wasn't looking at outside context, but my primary thing was, no, how, how is the Bible describing what the Bible saying in this mm-hmm. portion, uh, mm-hmm. which I was, was tremendously, and I, I feel like that should be obvious, but it wasn't to me. Um, and yeah, how does the Bible too, interpret itself? Yeah. And that's, I think you, you hear that a lot, but you don't understand how that works necessarily. How does the Bible interpret itself? But that <clears throat> the promise and fulfillment kind of, thematic and the, the covenant um, theme within scripture. So that was, that was tremendously helpful for me. Um, and so I, that, and that kind of brings to the chapter two where, yeah, this is some outside scholarship stuff, which can be helpful, but yeah, that you're also your comment on what's most necessary in the church today. And it's, we need to read more Bible. We need to be more literate mm-hmm. in the Bible and, and not in mm-hmm. um, not to say that nothing else matters whatsoever. We can't mm-hmm. look at anything else, but our primary mm-hmm. goal should be how can we read the Bible better? Um, how can we be more literate what the Bible says? How can we how can we know more Bible? So that's just mm-hmm. as a as an encouragement to to keep that up because I think it's helping a lot of people out too. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's great. That's what I get excited about. Yeah. Speaking of scripture, though, in this chapter, uh, you do focus on uh, mainly two areas: the Gospels and Paul's letters. Yeah. Uh, and maybe for somebody that's brand new to this book, maybe has never even opened this book up, they hear the title Covenant in Contemporary New Testament Scholarship. They're like, what does that even mean? So maybe we start there just defining the title <laughs> yeah. and then maybe focus on and then maybe focus on how do the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, maybe with John, maybe without John, 
um, and Paul's letters, how they uh, relate to this. Yeah, so this, okay, when we talk about covenant, we're talking about how, we're talking about how God relates to his people. Yeah. It's a form of relationship. So when we talk about how other scholars outside of the Reformed tradition, within the Reformed tradition, how do they perceive that relationship with God? That is a massive question. Like that is, you're, but you're asking one of the most fundamental questions of all. So it's a difficult thing to talk about because it is so massive and because it is so you, so the question, how does, how does Jesus relate to the covenant in the gospels? You're asking, how does Jesus relate to God's relationship to his people? Like that is, it is such a massive question. It is hard to even (laughs) sketch the general outline of that so that's where i you know that's why there are other chapters that do that there's a chapter on the gospels which i think is written by is that um kruger that did that and then there's the then there's one on paul i can't remember who did the paul one waters did waters did the one on paul of course so kruger yeah so they're different you know, they're, they're kind of two different. So that's, that's a more biblical question. My, the, the, my essay is how do other scholars perceive that relationship yep. in the gospels mm-hmm. in Paul and then just in, just in general. So I'm asking not what does scripture say about this, but what do other people say about what scripture says? Do you follow? That's yeah. why yep. it's called, that's why it's called covenant in contemporary new Testament scholarship like yeah. i'm not looking at the puritans i'm not you know looking at the reformers or medieval theologians or these guys um it's what do people say in the last hundred or so years yeah years so maybe looking yeah. at this broad brush so who who are some of the major players you're interacting with in this and then how would they read um how the covenant is understood in the gospels or in paul differently than we might read it uh i didn't take i didn't focus on i didn't spend a great deal of time focusing on individuals i did more broader strokes with let's say the new perspective and that would be it was hard about the new perspective is that it's not monolithic so you've got guys like james dunn tom wright uh these types of figures and then there are all these different sort of permutations within the new perspective so it makes it very difficult to interact with it as a whole. So I, you know, I think I did just a little bit of overview. I know Guy Waters wanted me to do some overview with uh, the new perspective. So you obviously have to start with Sanders and and then work it, work it through Dunn and work it through Tom Wright. And what that basically says is that in the new perspective, God, the way that God relates to his people is by grace, which is a great thing. God creates Israel. He establishes relationship. It's by grace. So the relationship is established at Sinai by grace. And that he expects people to uh, respond to him. And so Sanders will use words like maintain the covenant mm-hmm. uh, by works. Yeah. And so we have, so we have grace. It's really a grace plus works formula in the new perspective. And so when you read that, you're like, oh, that is, I mean, it, you can see why Sanders says that or Dunn says that. 
Um, and, and, you know, it, it, it makes sense at some level, but then as that's on, as that unfolds itself throughout the remainder of the old Testament and then on into the new Testament, we then start to see problems. And that is, what does it mean to maintain the covenant to do the, Hmm. so we have to do our, our side of the equation. God, God does something in us. And then we have to then do something as well. And it's through both of those that the relationship is, is established and maintained. And it's precisely there where Protestants, uh, traditional Protestants, were like, no, that doesn't work within, yeah. within ref- not just Reformed theology, but it doesn't work in the Protestant tradition. Mm-hmm. Like we, pre- the Protestants precisely uh, reformed, or to, to put it another way, the reformers did what they did precisely because of that. Mm-hmm. And so what we're talking about here is not, is, this is not simply a Protestant issue or I'm, uh, man, I'm, I'm, I apologize. What, the problem here is not simply a Paul issue or, mm. or a justification mm-hmm. issue in the last 50 years. No, this is a reformed issue that goes back 500 years. Mm. Okay. They really are. So really what's happening is that the new perspective really is undoing mm. a great deal of reformed theology, that it's yeah. not just, it's not just a nuance it's not just a, a tweak here and there. It is a reconfiguration of Protestant theology. Yeah, which kind of tends to be which is a big deal. A little which bit. is yeah, a they, big deal. they usually say no. It's just a little bit of a tweak here and there. We're just we're kind of nuancing. It's not a Paul. tweak. Yeah, it's not a tweak. It's not a tweak. You have, and this is why basic issues um, of of the nature of sin the nature of works, the yeah. nature of, of faith, uh, Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, these ideas uh, are, are, look, we've already, the church has already talked about this, that we've yeah. already, we've already established the lines of the sand and new perspective is, the new perspective is broadly, not every single person it, uh, is an Arminian, but most of the new perspective is built on an Arminian mm. foundation. And that's a really big deal because yeah. when you start to get into sanctification and justification and how one works before God, you're going to really Arminianism is so close to legalism. Like if really Arminianism worked out, I think logically worked out becomes legalism because mm-hmm. you're because it's the idea that that you can do something you can generate something that changes god's attitude towards us yeah that is that is an arminian plank and that moves right into legalism and so really we're we at the end of this thing we have doctrine of god issues divine simplicity issues yep it's like you're really doing you're really reconfiguring a lot of of Protestant thought, Reformed thought, the way that we read Romans and Galatians and some yeah. of these texts, um, it's not a, it's not a my, it's not a tweak. Mm. So where, yeah. where oh. is um, the new? Uh, so I'm just trying to. So, so my chapter, so my chapter is trying yeah. to get at some of this. I yeah. didn't, I didn't push this all the way out just because I don't have space and that's not what they were asking me, but that's, (laughs) I'm just trying to chart. I'm just trying to show here that there are different ways. There's been a new way 
there's been a new way of reading covenant. And that's essentially what they're trying to do is yep. different from, this is different from what uh, has traditionally been, been thought. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a relatively new phenomenon, especially within kind of this camp with yeah, the big works. It's in the new. 70s and it's 80s. A, right. It's an, it's a new move in Protestant thought. It's yeah. not a new move, move in, in Catholic thought. Huh, okay. Catholic Catholics have been doing this sort of thing for, for a long, long time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm not a Catholic scholar. You can ask those guys. They could get, they could nuance it better than I can, but this, but it's a very similar, huh. it's very similar to how Catholics view justification and salvation. It's just minus the Pope or m- maybe minus the doctrine of the church or something mm. like that. Yeah. But as far as the nature of justification and sanctification and, and these, it's, it's, I really don't see a difference between them. Hmm. Yeah. 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 True. And that's why always reforming is so important because now we're right. facing it in pro- Protestant circles, you know, the same things that the Catholic circles were doing. And yeah, but we're, like we're dressing in different clothes. They're like trying to dress it in clothes that are, are not Protestant clothes. They're dressing it in clothes that are, are old clothes that we've already kind of uh, thrown <clears throat> off and said, no, that's, that's not who we are. Mm-hmm. Taking yeah. a slight yeah. step back, uh, knowing that, a lot of this uh, New Testament scholarship is talking about the last hundred years, last four decades, uh, however you put it. Um, it j- the Dead Sea Scrolls, does that play a part in any of this? The discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Well, the Dead Sea Scrolls play a part in everything. Uh, it's, <laughs> yeah. It, there, there are times like in the works of the law when Paul says works of the law in Galatians and Romans, mm-hmm. there are some purported links to the Dead Sea Scrolls and in works of the law there because uh, they use a very similar expression. Um, it, 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 it doesn't rest on the dead sea scrolls the way that i see it it does not it 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 you know i i'm not quite sure i think i think i think that the dead sea scrolls and the, and so i think both both sides try to use the dead sea scrolls against each other which is yeah. funny yeah it, it's not you would think that it, it, these scholars don't agree on how to read the scrolls do you see what <laughs> yeah. i'm saying yep they're they're read they're read differently by both camps yeah so i do think you have to look at the scrolls and you do have to see no they are trying to let's they're trying to make they're trying to do stuff to earn god's favor Mm -hmm. i think you can i think i can say that and not try to bend uh what they're doing um you know uh yeah and and not all scrolls the scrolls aren't monolithic yep yeah yeah there's so many of them um and so you even start off your your chapter so some of the the two big things that you talk about are you you say just due to the brevity of this you talk about the lord's supper and you talk about jesus's relationship to the covenant so how how is that's a different thing that's a different in that in that section of the chapter i was talking about how just this idea of covenant in the gospels yeah where is it in the gospels well it's everywhere but explicitly, we find it, of course, at the Last Supper uh, there yeah. when Jesus. He even says, you know, this is, this is, this is a new covenant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
So that's, I mean, I was just trying to do that there and, you know, show some, show some, show some awareness of it in the gospels. Yeah. Explicit awareness of it. (laughs) What's hard about covenant theology, and this is what people have a hard time understanding is that a lot of this, a lot of covenant theology uh, it lurks in the background. Hmm. It is a framework. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is why people maybe are reticent about buying into covenant theology because you don't have on the pages of the New Testament, you know, covenant, 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 mm-hmm. covenant. Do you see? Yeah. What you do have on the pages of the New Testament are words like kingdom and words mm-hmm. like justification. And words like um, whether you're in the Gospels with Jesus with miracles or Jesus doing stuff, and then in Paul, you you, you know, uh, it, it's you don't you just don't have tons and tons of covenant language. So really, what covenant theology is, it's a blanket. It is a framework for understanding. Yeah. It's a whole, and it's, it's so you so you understand the individual parts in light of the whole, and. Um, that's one of the reasons why biblical theology is, is so attractive because biblical theology uses organic terms in the mm-hmm. Bible and it uses organic themes like temple or new creation or the role of the spirit or the role of, of the, of land and cosmos and, and image and all of these things that are so organic to the text so that when you open your Bibles, you can see it. It's very explicit. It's, it's right there on the surface. Whereas with covenant theology, sometimes it is on the surface, yeah. but a lot of the times it's this blanket thing framework that lurks in the background and is sort of a controlling thing mm-hmm. for understanding how the Bible is pieced together. Do you see? And so yeah. this is why I think mm-hmm. covenant theology is amorphous. And is difficult for people to buy into. They they really want people today. It's amazing here how reformed and non-reformed they will agree. They like biblical theology. You, yeah. you can be a Calvinist. You can be an Arminian. You can be a Baptist. You can be you can be uh, Presbyterian. And all of those camps they really do like biblical theology because you're dealing with the text at a sort of a, a, a organic level and not that the covenant of course the covenant theology does that, but it's, you're working with larger dimensions of, of the Bible. And so I think what's happening is that as people discover the unity of scripture, how these themes intersect, these biblical theological themes intersect that they're starting to see, Oh, wait a minute. There's something that's binding all of this together. And that's the covenant. That's, uh, uh, creation, fall, redemption type story pieces. Do you see? That's mm-hmm. that's, 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 that, that's at work. Yeah, it sounds a lot like when you're having to rebuild your house recently in the last year. There's a lot of framing and and the guts of the the home and uh, the framework and structure. You yeah, know, you, you don't see it when you walk in, but if you don't have it, you don't have a house. Yeah, yeah. right. And now, right. now that your house is done, right. you don't see right. the stuff that's holding up the house. Right. right. You don't see the bones. You don't see yep. the bones. Yeah. You don't see the the studs and the framing and all that. You see the outer part, so you can detect it. So you can see uh, God's covenant. You know, um, mm. grace and works and and and. That, um, yeah, you can. Now, I will say, and and this is where it comes down to, I think, good biblical theology. And I bring this out at the end. Yeah, 
of my chapter. And that's where I talk about the covenant of works Mm -hmm. and what's happened in reformed theology. And again, I'm, this would be, this is more of a John Fesco question Mm because he's done the work here. But what's happened is that over time, the covenant of works is being defined so narrowly there in the garden of Adam and Eve, you know, don't partake of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's a prohibition. And so it's so narrowly defined. It, if you keep the covenant of work so narrowly defined, then I think it becomes difficult to see the covenant of works in the life of Christ. Hmm. I think, you know, what, what is, what is so critical to reformed thought is to say that Jesus fulfilled the covenant of works. Like yep. that is a linchpin. If you yep. can't say that, I don't see how you can be a covenant theologian yeah so you've got to argue for the covenant of works and you've got to argue that jesus did the covenant of works but if you narrowly define the covenant of works as simply a prohibition then where do you see it in where do you see it in the gospels yep yep i don't see i don't see a tree there of the knowledge of good and evil that he's refraining from so i think what we have to do is i think we've got to go back and i think we've got to go back to genesis 1 to 3 and especially one, the two and see the covenant of works is bigger than simply a prohibition that mm-hmm. this is where Genesis one twenty six and 28 about being fruitful, being creating God's image, being fruitful, being multiplying, subduing the earth. And then later in two fifteen to two seventeen, see it's, it's very common for people to see the covenant works in two seventeen, but two seventeen is part of two fifteen, And in two fifteen, yep. Adam is this priest. He's a priest King that's supposed to cultivate the earth. Mm-hmm. So being a priest king is part of his, uh, as part of the the covenant works. Adam and Eve were to do stuff. They were to fill the earth with the God with God's glory, as prophet, priests, and kings. And the covenant of works. And how are they supposed to do it through Genesis two twenty four through marriage? Yep. So I argue that the covenant of works is Genesis one twenty six to twenty eight. 215 to 17 in the Genesis 224. Yep, yep. That's when you put all three of those texts together, the covenant of works is very robust. Yep. It's very it, it really is tied to the story of the Bible. And then you can go into Israel and you can say Israel was supposed to do this as well. Now I I, I, I hold to a soft view of republication. Yep. Yeah, same I'm here. not as hard I'm not as hardcore as Klein. I think Klein softened. Uh, in in his later years, yeah, so I'm here. semi I'm semi Kleinian. Yep. So yep. once you, because you can see if you have a good definition of covenant works in Genesis one to two, then you can see it in Israel. Then you can see it recapitulated in yep. Israel, and then ultimately you can then see it operating in the Gospels. And that is now you can see because think about it: the Gospels, if it were all about Jesus' death. They would have only recorded Passion Week, but Passion yeah. Week, as important as it is, it's only a it's only a percentage of the entire story. Why were the why were the four evangelists so intent on recording uh, Jesus' life? Two of them talk about Jesus's birth. Why is that important? Because of the covenant of works. You've got to see Jesus as this prophet, priest, and king. And I think that's so important mm. to maintaining a robust view of the covenant of works, robust view of the covenant of grace, how these larger planks are really at work 
in uh, in the Gospels. And it, it really is sad. It really is sad yeah. that I think a lot of people have a really hard time. A lot of good covenant theologians have a hard time point, putting their finger on specific texts in the Gospels and saying, Jesus is fulfilling the covenant of works right there. Yep. Because they have mm-hmm. such a narrow view. They have such a narrow view. In other words, you've got to bring in you've got to bring in temple. You've got to bring in God's glory into yep. that equation. The, the subduing of evil, the subduing of the serpent there in Genesis three, that's got to be part of it. Yeah. So, yeah. No, and, that's and a maybe... really big, I think that's a really big deal. And so I think what's happening is I do think covenant theology is, is refining. I think it can be refined in those areas. Like I got, I think guys like John Owen, I, I, I need to reread these guys because I mm-hmm. think a guy like John Owen, I think he starts to say some of this stuff. I don't, not all the Puritans and not all the um, reformers uh, nuanced it so broadly, but I think if you have a broader, my sense is that early in the church, uh, uh, the covenant of works was broader, but then as time mm-hmm. went on, it just got narrower and narrower. And so I think that leads to problems. Yeah. I mean, if I can, if I can plug a, plug a book that you're that you're you edit the series for with um with dr beal and dr kim their god dwells among us which we're having them on next week to, to oh, talk good. about their to talk good. about but they talk exactly about this where the god this garden temple theme in genesis one to three is so crucial if we want to understand the work of the law the work of of the commandment given to adam being kind of recapitulated through covenant history redemptive history and we see that very explicitly in the gospels of, of Jesus kind of reliving the, the Adamic code, that, that commandment given to Adam that he, when you see all these themes of the covenant of works, covenant of grace, covenant of redemption throughout scripture, you start seeing that what, what Jesus does fills in um, in terms of, of his covenant context. And I, I think they, they do a great job in that mm-hmm. book. And obviously Dr. Beale's work on the temples is incredible mm-hmm. on some of this stuff. But if you, if you don't see this stuff, um, mm-hmm. within the first couple of chapters of Genesis, you're going to have a really hard time reading the rest of the, right, the Old right. Testament coming into the New right. Testament. Right. In covenant theology, see, here's the thing. Covenant theology is so dependent on Genesis 1 yeah. to 3. But what's mm. what's happened is that the covenant, covenant of grace, God's promise to overcome evil, is dependent on, on 3, that's 315. Yep. So that's that's where the covenant of grace is is very explicit there. That's 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 the beginning of that. But what about Genesis one to two? Do mm-hmm. you see like what? It's <laughs> almost as though we go right from Genesis two seventeen to Genesis three fifteen. Yep. What about Genesis one? Yep. How does that how does that fit in with creation? How does that fit in with the cosmos and the sanctuary? Yeah. You see. I think we've got these, I think we've got these, these little bit of a gaps here. Yep. And I think they need to be, they need to be filled out um, and refined. And I re- so I do think that kind of the future of a reformed theology is going to, is going to fill out some of these gaps. And I think mm-hmm. we're going to see how scripture is really very organic on these matters yep. totally. um, even more so, so that, so yes, covenant is covenant is sort of the, the the framework the bones of a house the uh the uh, two by fours and the two by sixes and the two by eights and you know it is it is that but if you have a robust view of the covenant of works you can actually see some of the surface some of the flesh some of the you know maybe you know some of the outer features of the house that you're like oh that's the covenant of works right there boom see that yeah rather than just being such 
you know, kind of behind the scenes thing. Yeah. Maybe if I can ask one more, one more question, kind of my last, I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll let Nick kind of take this from here on out, but I think it's, it's very attached and or organic with this. And, and you talk a little bit about this uh, middle and end of the, of the book on this, as it relates to covenant of works and justification and what are we justified? Who are we justified through? And what is, what's, what's being done on our behalf? Um, and maybe if you don't have to nuance it too much, but how, how is justification being misinterpreted? If you're, if we're looking at Paul, if we don't have this covenantal framework in mind, the covenant of works in mind, the covenant of grace in mind, how, how, how do we misread justification? How are we misreading Paul when he's in Galatians talking about the works of the law Versus if we have a robust theology of the covenant works, what Paul's doing in Galatians as it relates to kind of that covenant context. If you have a robust view of the covenant works, we can see precisely what Christ has done. So what's typically, what, what's typically thought is that, is that Christ's work is, is narrowly defined as, as his death and resurrection. Yeah. That's, a, those are, that's huge, of course. But what about, what about the first 30 years of his life? Yep. Yep. How does that play into the covenant? How does that play into his death and resurrection? If it were only about Christ's death and resurrection, then that's all that would be recorded mm-hmm. in the gospels. Do you see? But it's broader than that. So when so when Paul you know mentions Christ's work or Christ's righteousness, these ideas, I think he's not focused simply on his death. He's focused on his life, his faithful life. Like in Romans five, it's so mm-hmm. clear to me there. I, I think the more that I read the gospels, the more that I can explain Romans five, mm-hmm. it's Christ's life. It's through he, Paul uses words like obedience. It's he's Christ. Isn't simply obedient in death. Of course he is there, but he's obedient in life. It's his, it's his life and death and his resurrection is all of these pieces. And so it's fully orbed. Mm-hmm. And so what we then, and then we enter, we enter into relationship with God through Christ's life, death and resurrection. And so that's why when Christ sees us, he sees that's a perfect Adam, mm-hmm. Christ's righteousness. That's, that is, he sees us as Adamic servants, Adamic individuals who have done what the first Adam in Israel should have done. So it really fills out. It's, I think I can, I think I can really articulate uh, justification well and point you to just all sorts of texts that mm. show this idea rather than just simply a couple texts. Yeah. 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 It's more, we're working on more, I think conceptual, biblical, theological levels. Cause it, I think it's, it's hard. You know, that's why typically, when we talk about imputation, it's just, you know, second Corinthians five twenty one, And so you got that one text there. And so maybe at the end there, first Corinthians one, how Christ is our righteousness, but you know, uh, uh, you know, if, if imputation is such a big deal, why is it only mentioned twice? Huh. Yeah. Uh, explicitly. But I don't, but I think it's, it's, I think the concept abounds in Paul and the concept abounds throughout the new Testament, not simply Paul and not simply just two texts. Yeah. Are you able to uh, real quickly just shed some light on the term progressive covenantalism? I know that on Twitter, yeah. social media, we had some curiosity about more uh, explanation about that. And you mentioned it in this chapter. So Baptists, think about this. So mm-hmm. Baptists are, uh, they're not Presbyterians. Mm-hmm. Right. Baptists 
in the last hundred years have very often become dispensationalists. I grew up in a dispensational home. Yep. Mm, okay. And it wasn't until I went to, so I accepted Christ in my heart. If you want to frame it like that when I was five years old, but I grew up in a Baptist setting, very uh, conservative fundamentalist. And then when I went into college, uh, I went, I spent my first years at Bob Jones university, again, huh. very conservative, very Arminian, very Baptist, very dispensational context. But then when I went to the master's college as a junior, my, my, uh, in college, I then accepted Calvin in my heart because you start <laughs> to discover, yeah. right. You start to discover the five solas. You yeah. start to see, Oh, this is amazing. This makes so much sense of scripture. And then you discover the five solas and you start to realize that the five solas are part of something bigger. And that something bigger is not dispensationalism. Mm-hmm. And so what you have then you've, you now have a massive amount of men and women who like the five solas, like these precious doctrines of soteriology and they naturally drift away from dispensationalism. Mm-hmm. And so the alternative is covenant theology, but they're not Presbyterian. They don't want to dunk babies. <laughs> yeah, They don't want to go full on that way. So they don't want to become full on covenant theologians yeah. and they don't want to stay in their dispensational camps. There are many in dispensational camps. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to now looking for somewhat of a middle road, a way to hold two reform soteriology and ask in, in other, in other uh, related um, issues that are attached to reform theology, but yet not the whole Presbyterian type, not the full blown covenant thing. And so this was just, it was intention, you know, they, they really didn't have a home in either camp. And so that's when guys like Steve Wellum and Peter Gentry, really great guys, um, they're now trying to chart a third way mm. and they call it progressive covenantalism because it's covenantal. It's covenantal. You see that they use that word covenantal. So they really see that the covenants are the backbone of scripture, which is what a covenant theologian would say. But then when we get into the nature of the new covenant, that's where we disagree. And so it's, it's this, yeah, it's this, it's so really the, the, the debate is between covenant theology or covenant theologian in the nature of the new covenant with these progressive guys. And so they just see, you know, we just, we just define it differently. Yeah. yeah but, yeah. but just know that, that there's now put forward by Baptists a way to get away from dispensationalism and to not fully fold into a covenant framework it's yeah. it's it's trying to it's trying to chart and what's what's great about it it sees covenant as being huge it's a structural feature there's a lot of from what i've read there's a lot of discussion of how jesus is israel that's mm-hmm. huge that is a massive and then how the church is israel mm-hmm. so honestly i am i am thrilled like i that because if you can assert that jesus is israel and Jesus is Adam, and that the church takes on that identity because they're united to him, I'm like, hey, we can get a lot of work done. We can read the Bible pretty closely here. Yep. yep. 
Um, so I really would like to highlight the continuity between the two approaches and not the discontinuity. The discontinuity comes out in the nature of the sacraments and baptism and those sorts of things. But there really is. I think it's a really good step. I, I, um, you know, I just would want to say, well, that's not far enough. But you know, <laughs> yeah, let's go all the just, way. That's just let's just let's go not all the dip way. our toes you know, in the just, water. Let's let's dunk our babies in it. Too. Yeah, you're just getting warmed up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um. So, I mean, my my last my last question, um, as it relates to this is again if it does is there is there anything contemporary new testament scholarship kind of outside of um kind of typical reformed covenantal scholarship is there anything it's doing to help us read our bible a little bit better by bringing in some outside stuff um that maybe we're not thinking about kind of on the front is there is there anything they're doing to help us read the bible a little bit better yeah so one of the things that the new perspective did and this was a good thing it, it did it did two things it helped us articulate and sharpen justification whenever we're forced whenever evangelicals are forced to go back to the sources let's read them again uh that let's let's articulate this afresh let's tighten it up whenever we do that of course it's a good thing we're i mean that's within the reform tradition is it's we're always reforming we're always refreshing we're always reading the bible again and again and again and sharpening you know the reformers they're amazing, but they were imperfect. Mm-hmm. Every generation is imperfect. We will always imperfectly present these views. We do the best we can, but it is always imperfect. So we have to constantly refresh ourselves and refine ourselves with the perfect word of God, you see. So that was a good thing. Mm-hmm. And I think good things came out of it. Number two, and this is, I think, the more substantive issue, is that the new perspective really put its finger on the social dimension of Paul and mostly Paul, some of the other New Testament writers, but mostly Paul and uh, the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. And I think the reformers were aware of that, but the new, but the new perspective really forced protestant and reformed theologians to look at that again and Mm. say you know what we could have done a better job understanding this social dynamic Mm. they the difference is that the new perspective won the collapse justification inside it Mm. i think that's a i think that's a bad move yep yep uh i think justification is primary social dimension is secondary but the social dimension is the result of the primary of course yeah you wouldn't want to divorce them completely but um, I think that we needed, I think we did need some good, um, uh, n- uh, some nuance there. Yeah. So, some social dynamic stuff that I think the reform that we had always, New Testament scholars were, were largely aware of this, but we didn't talk about it as much as we probably should. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's that's helpful. I think it's it's very easy for reformed theologians and and other reformed podcasts to kind of just take up new covenant or the new perspective on Paul and just like whack it with a bat and say no, this is just this is just bad stuff. Where a lot of it is 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 bad reading of justification. But yeah, like you said, there's there's some stuff we can learn. There's a nuance there. We can learn. Yeah, there's a nuance there. We can learn about these social dynamics and the more. And this is where the Dead Sea Scrolls yeah. can help us is that we can see some of these social dynamics and appreciate them better. The more we're aware of Second Temple literature, we can start to see 
see this at work. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I loved your emphasis on this. Let's keep the primary things primary. So covenant works, covenant grace, covenant redemption, justification, primary. separate from sanctification, yep. the content, like let's, let's keep these things primary and the secondary things, these social dynamics will come as a result of this. And they this will work come. Done. They will come. Yes, of course. But they're always, you know, they're always, um, put in their proper perspective with the gospel the social the the, the social dynamic is not the gospel of course not the social dynamic the social harmony is an outgrowth of the gospel it's a result of the gospel yeah and the problem is when we collapse all of this together the problem is that when we collapse it that's correct that's correct yes Mm -hmm. yes gotcha cool so really there are two main things we've got to keep at work we have to keep i think a reformed view of sin and faith and works that we have to maintain that if we don't maintain that we're no longer protestant like i'm not even saying we're no longer reformed we're no longer protestant like i read i've read some of these some of these and i i really don't want to name their names but i read some of these kind of revision revisionist pieces here that are published by like uh erdman's and some of these other publishers on law and faith and works and I read that I'm like, yeah, that's a Catholic view. Mm. And this person's a Protestant and he's advocating, he or she is advocating for uh, a, a Protestant reading of these texts. Uh, but I'm like, but that's not Protestant. That's mm. not what, that's not, that's a different, that's much more in line with the Catholic reading of those texts. So totally. this isn't even, this is not even an evangelical new perspective debate. This is a Protestant, like we're even going more basic than mm. that this is a Protestant Catholic debate hmm. and uh, we have, so we've got to maintain clarity here and we can't undo the last 500 years of the church. Yeah. That's helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. Do yeah, you have we, anything else to, to add to this? Yeah. It seems like we keeps as time goes on, we keep slipping back into adding works. Right. With <laughs> right. And then we have exactly. to be gotta, like, no. right. Right. <laughs> but you've got to understand a lot of these guys, um are 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 working from a are working from an arminian perspective of soteriology and arminianism and legalism and catholic theology of justification those are all bound together this is you know the uh, i mean this is like theology 101 here we learn this in college we learned this very early on in our careers and, and it really is. And so when, so when you have those types of scholars arguing for this type of, this new approach to, to justification and sanctification and reading Paul, um, I mean, it's, you know, it's not a Protestant reading. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I, so I don't know what else to say. It's not a Protestant reading. This is not what, you know, yep. <laughs> a lot of sm- uh, yeah. guys way, way smarter than I, we, the church has convened over and over again and have pr- published massive amounts. They, they are, they are sharper than we are. They have worked through these issues uh, in a much more deeper way yep. than I have. And these other guys have, and they've articulated it. We don't need to keep reinventing the mm-hmm. wheel here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Totally. If you, if you we just need. A- I think. I think it would be best, Nick. I really think it would be best if these, if if these men and women who were advocating 
this sort of quasi Catholic approach. If they just, if they just acknowledge it, they were just said, look, we're Arminians. We have, we have problems with the reform view of sin and justification and God's wrath and righteousness and covenant of works covenant. We have problems with that. Hmm. And our approach in what in, in Catholic theology makes a lot of sense to us. Maybe not all of it, but it makes a lot of like, if they just came out and said it and articulated it, I would be, you know what? I think it would be easier for me to read them. Totally. Yeah. Cause it would, because it would make more sense to me. I think what's hard. It would be consistent. What's hard is when Protestant is that they're doing it as Protestants and mm. quasi reformed or something like it just doesn't, it's confusing. Yeah. It's confusing to me. Yeah. And then confuses the church and those who read it. And it confuses the church confuses pastors confuses lay people it introduces confusion so i really think it's just play all your cards out in front you know and uh and so i think it i think it's i think it'll be much more fruitful to be honest with totally you. yeah well yeah and i think uh a faith plus works doctrine affects your her- hermeneutics looking at paul his letters and that could be i could see how then it brings up this discussion of a new perspective on Paul because they're trying to approach mm-hmm. the a faith plus works interpretation and hermeneutics to Paul's letters. Yeah, they're trying to go faith plus works, but they make it, but they put it that their spin is to make it uh, that they add a social dynamic to it, mm-hmm. the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. So it's a it's a unique spin there, and that's yep. what's yep. unique to uh the new perspective and yeah and, and it's attractive you know the new perspective yeah. it's attractive because what does it do it breaks down barriers between protestants and catholics and even if you're hardcore um even even the even the jewish community as well because mm-hmm. they're you know oh you, you know no legalism only mm-hmm. by god's grace you don't you're not legalist um these sorts of these sorts of, so it really can be very it's an ecumenical move and it's a way to get even, you know, reform people and non-reform people together. So, of course, of course, broadly speaking, everybody's going to buy into it, right? Because we want to we want to put our arms yeah. around each other and say, no, we're all part of the same thing. We're just putting different nuances ah. on uh, on uh, on scripture. And so, no, there are, there are some fundamental there are some fundamental problems here. Yeah. I mean, I, I love, I love how each, it seems like each, and I, I mean, it should be obvious, but each, each one of these episodes that we're doing, regardless of whatever topic we're going through, it, it always seems like it comes down to the basics. If, if we have some of these fundamental basics that come from scripture, um, helping us read scripture and helping us read Christ's finished work for us, um, the ba- I mean, it's, you think you move beyond the basics until you realize what the basics are. Of, right, right. Of God's faithfulness to right. us in his son, Christ, right. taking on what we couldn't do ourselves. We think right. we can move beyond that to other stuff, other doctrines, other things, right. which are great in and them, of themselves. But if we forget the basics, then, yeah, our theology is going to go a little wacky. Yeah. That's exactly right. And this is why the, this is why Genesis 1 and 2 are so important, because if yeah. if 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 it really is faith plus works equals justification, if it really is that formula, then we don't need Genesis one to two. Yeah. We don't need, we don't need the covenant of works. We don't need Adam, Adam, but, but because Genesis one to two is in there, it's not faith plus works. Do you Mm -hmm. see that we, there, we don't, we don't, we don't contribute. Yep. 
Yeah, totally. Because yeah. of Genesis one to two, and because of what Jesus is doing. Why this is, I think, so fundamental to Galatians. It's like if we could do this, then why did Jesus do it? <laughs> exactly. Right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. And it's not just about his death; it's his life, death, yep. and resurrection. Yeah. Yeah. That, we that's, too narrowly you know, focus you, on his death, but we forget that a faithful, perfectly obedient life to the law that allowed the vindication that allowed his righteousness to be imputed to us. Cause he had to have righteousness. He had to have the thing that Adam didn't have. He had to have, he had to do the thing that Adam failed to do, mm-hmm. which is what's given to us. And if we forget about yeah. his life, then what does his death mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I love it. It's, it, I love going back to the basis. And I think as, as reformed theologians is something we have to continually go back to. What are the basics of the faith? Let's consistently remind ourselves of the gospel. Let's remind ourselves of what we failed to do and what's been done for us. Um, and I love the emphasis in the chapter, um, which I think sometimes you can get to two technical um, explanations and say, let's, let's go back to the Bible. Let's go back to Genesis 1 through 3. Let's go back to the covenant works. Let's go back to what did Christ do on the cross for us. So, yeah, thanks. Thanks for writing this chapter and, and all that you're writing for the church and um, going back mm-hmm. to let's read more of the Bible versus let's try to figure out all these cultural contexts mm-hmm. like, you know the bible really well it's gonna it's gonna help us out a lot more mm-hmm. than if we know yeah how we don't need right that right the church the church doesn't need to understand culture better my goodness we understand too much <laughs> culture we're on <laughs> yeah. social media all the time yeah we're on netflix we don't need to understand the culture we really don't we we right. need to know less about the world around <laughs> us that would be a good yeah that would be a good thing for our minds and our hearts to know less about it but we need to know way more about scripture. And I think if you do, then I think you're going to be able to interact with it really well. Mm, yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, yeah. Thank you very much. It's been a, it's been a pleasure having you on talking about this and te- technically this is our second to last recording, even though this is our, our third to last episode on this, but yeah, it's been a joy having you on for the third time. Thank and you I'm guys. Sure we'll yeah, probably thanks have you so on much again for your soon. time, Peter and Nick. Yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Are you looking for a reformed church in the Orange County, Santa Ana area? We'll be starting our study through the book of Judges, as well as diving into Reverend Danny Hyde's Welcome to Reformed Church beginning weekly on December 2nd, which is a Thursday at 6.30 p.m. at 4th Street Market in downtown Santa Ana. If you'd like updates and information on joining our core group, email us at santaanareformed at gmail.com or head to either Guilt Grace Pod or Santa Ana URC on Twitter or find the link in the show notes to learn more. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed that episode of our podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude. And we, as we've said before, we are bridging the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. So we would like to make sure this is enjoyed by others around the world and how to best do that is rate and review us on itunes yeah and you after you rate a review or instead of rate and review or doing everything all in once retweeting us on twitter liking us on twitter liking us on instagram following us on both of those platforms because that actually puts in front of people's physical face this podcast these guests and most importantly the gospel the doctrines uh, that these guests are bringing in front of you guys. So please do that. It helps get in front of more people. Amen. And hopefully you guys are part of a local church and you're tithing. And uh, after that, after tithing, if you have any means left over, please consider donating to us to make sure our bridge 
is well paved and maintained and strong and sturdy as again we bridge the gap to reform christian <laughs> theology exactly the yeah and you guys can find that link on anchor our official anchor website if you just go on um, our social media links it'll it'll link you to that website it's also at the bottom of these this podcast show notes if you're on this podcast a specific episode scroll all the way to the bottom of that show notes and you guys will find a link for this or three different options of donating so we hope you guys can help us bridge the gap pay for shipping get nicer stuff all for the focus of spreading the gospel further yep all for the kingdom of god thanks so much guys we'll see you guys next time <laughs>